few summers ago when I was uh, doing a sabbatical while I worked on my uh, dissertation, we, you, you recall we had a bunch of preachers from the Master Seminary, and one of them was Dr. Irv Busnitz, uh, eminent professor of Hebrew, and we ended up singing uh, Gadol Elohai on that day, and Darren was as nervous as a tick. I uh, hope we got that right, but Dr. Irv Busnitz said that we nailed it, so uh, that was, it was like getting a grade all over again. Well, turn with me to Deuteronomy 34, and we now come to our 65th message in the Pentateuch. I don't usually advertise that until we get to the end. The final chapter of Deuteronomy comes to us as the eulogy of the man who led Israel out of Egypt. I really appreciated Pastor David's reading of Acts 7, which tells this whole story. The man who brought ten horrible plagues upon Pharaoh... The man who led Israel through the Red Sea and into the wilderness to Mount Sinai to receive the law of God and now to the banks of the Jordan River to send them off as they cross over into the promised land. This is the man who wrote under the superintendence of the Holy Spirit, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. This is the man who gave us the very foundation of the Bible in the Pentateuch through the inspiration of the Spirit of God. It is Moses himself. And so let's read the last chapter of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 34. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead, as far as Dan, all Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah, as far as the western sea, the Negev, and the plain, that is, the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees, as far as Zoar. And the Lord said to him, This is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring." I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. And the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. Well, the first eight verses describe the death of Moses and verses 9 through 12 is really the eulogy of Moses. Moses, God, and a mountain always seem to go together. 
Moses began his ministry as the covenant mediator at Mount Sinai, and now he will ascend Mount Nebo to the slopes of the high point, Pisgah or Mount Pisgah. Mount Nebo is in the Aberdeen Mountains above the Jordan Valley, about 15 miles east of Jericho. And from Pisgah, at the time of the year that this happened, which would have been about February, it's the only time of the year where the sky is clear enough to see all the way to the Mediterranean Sea. And so Moses would have seen all the land. In fact, the description given in verses 1 through 3 shows him examining the land counterclockwise. The, and to, to your uh, orientation here, it would be Gilead just to the north, Dan a hundred miles to the north, then looking northwest, west, and southwest. And so Moses was given this view in a, in a circle. Interestingly, the death and burial of Moses is quite mysterious. No one knows where he was buried, apparently buried by God himself. And we have the added mystery that Jude, verse 9, says that the archangel Michael was in a dispute with Satan over the body of Moses. This would have undoubtedly been Satan's attempt to prevent a resurrection of Moses. And if you come on Sunday, September 12th, I'll tell you why. Because we see him again later in the Bible. Why would God bury Moses in a secret location? There's very likely a practical reason. As prone to pagan mysticism as the Israelites still were, it would have been natural to want to take the body of Moses with them as some sort of good luck charm. But God wasn't going to allow that. This would violate God's decree that Moses not go into the promised land yet because of his transgression and striking the rock when God didn't command him to do so. But despite Moses still experiencing the discipline of the Lord, there's no negativity, there's no shadow in this chapter He's presented in the vitality and the strength that God had given him. Verse 7 indicates that at age 120, he had not aged, essentially, in terms of loss of strength, loss of ability. And the people of Israel, all of whom had never had another leader, wept for Moses for a month. You recall, this is the younger generation. They've never known another leader. And now verse 9 gives the official passing of the mantle of authority in Israel to Joshua. And the, the Pentateuch ends then with this glorious description of Moses, that he was a, a one-of-a-kind prophet who fellowshiped with God face to face. He was a prophet who did signs and wonders not seen in any other prophet. Power in the Lord that literally defeated the most powerful nation on earth and set terror at times into the eyes of Israel herself. Moses is such a key person in the Old Testament, a man of God, the servant of the Lord through whom we have received so much. He's mentioned by name 38 times in the Gospels alone, 80 times in the whole New Testament. That's about once every four chapters. And in fact, in the Bible as a whole, Moses is mentioned 852 times. Pretty prominent character. Now, since the Pentateuch sees fit as the inspired word of God to end with the life of Moses, I'd like to do that as well. I'd hate for you to run into him in heaven and have nothing to say other than, hey, I saw a movie about you once. We want more than that. And so I'd like to just spend our time this evening marking some of the important biographical features of the life of Moses to have some outline to know him. And we're just going to have some markers of his life. And we'll just label them. The first marker... The king attempted to murder Moses. The king attempted to murder Moses. It was 1526 B.C. or so. 
and the descendants of Jacob and his sons had been living in Egypt and a new Pharaoh, unfamiliar with the family history of Joseph, the son of Jacob and the one-time prime minister of Egypt, this new Pharaoh enslaved the Hebrews out of fear of how quickly they were multiplying, how many of them there were. And so to stop the population growth, Exodus chapter 1 records that Pharaoh ordered that the Hebrew midwives kill the newborn baby boys. Well, the midwives refused to do this, and so Pharaoh commanded his people to take the baby Hebrew boys and murder them by throwing them into the Nile River. And during this oppression in 1526 B.C., Exodus 2 says, Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. But the Egyptians are murdering baby boys. So the second marker, Moses was hidden in Egypt to save his life. Moses was hidden in Egypt to save his life. Exodus 2 2 and 3 continues. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. Well, you know the story. Pharaoh's own daughter, bathing in the river, found the basket and saved the child. But it wasn't just a one-time act of kindness. No, ironically, to save Moses from the wrath of Pharaoh, he was raised right under Pharaoh's nose. The daughter of Pharaoh adopted Moses. Exodus 2 verse 10 says this and raised him as a prince in the courts of Pharaoh. There's a third marker of Pharaoh's, of uh, Moses' life rather. Moses went from a palace to poverty. He went from a palace to poverty. Exodus 2 records that a grown-up Moses, fully knowing his true identity, went out to look at the burden of slavery that the Hebrews were enduring. And as we read earlier in Acts 7, he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, and Moses struck down the Egyptian and hid the body. Well, word got back to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh was furious, and he intended to execute Moses. But Moses fled from Egypt all the way to the land of Midian, and instantly he went from a favored position in the palace of the king to having nothing but the clothes on his back. Exhausted from his long trek, having walked hundreds of miles over a period of many weeks, Moses sat down by a well in Midian. Our fourth marker of his life, Moses became the hero of the well. Moses became the hero of the well. Seven young women came to the well to get water for themselves and for their father's flocks that they were tending, but shepherds came and drove them away. The implication is that they did so violently. But Moses, seeing this happen, he stood up and he stood against these shepherds. He turned the tables on them, driving the shepherds away. And think about this. Moses was still dressed like an Egyptian and he had all the training of decades in the art of battle, the art of combat. And so he was able to drive these men away. He would have been an intimidating figure And so the women were able to draw the water they needed. Well, this was very exciting to them because this was a daily occurrence, them having to wait on these shepherds who were were abusive and intimidating. And so when the women got home, their father asked them how they got home so quickly that day because it was a daily occurrence that they waited so long at the well until there was no one there to intimidate them. So they told their father the story and dad came unglued. You just left him there? Exodus 2.20, this is totally inhospitable. 
So not only did the daughters go back to get Moses to eat a meal with the family, this man gave Moses one of his daughters to marry, who gave Moses two sons. And so Moses settled in to be a shepherd in the land of Midian. And for many decades, Moses was content simply to be a shepherd and to raise his family. But God had other plans for him. The fifth marker of his life, Moses answered God's call to save his people. Moses answered God's call to save his people. And we see this in Exodus 3. This records the time that Moses came to Mount Horeb, also known incidentally as Mount Sinai. He came with his flocks and Moses encountered the angel of the Lord, God incarnate, in the midst of a burning bush. And God called Moses to be the one to lead Israel out of captivity. Exodus 3.10, God said, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Now this, of course, would mean going back to where he was once a wanted man, going back to the people who might feel he had abandoned them, leaving his peaceful life as a shepherd, leaving that all behind to enter into a conflict that was literally a matter of life and death. Brings us to our sixth marker. Moses performed miracles as God's representative. Moses performed miracles as God's representative. In Exodus 5, Moses and his brother Aaron went to Pharaoh and gave the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go. And you recall that when God first revealed this mission to Moses, Moses was filled with doubts and fears about his ability to do this. He protested to God that he wasn't a good speaker, which incidentally is not true. He was a good speaker and that Israel might not listen to him either. And so for Moses to stand before the most powerful man in the world at the time and demand that Pharaoh release his entire core of slaves, this was a monumentally courageous speech to give. But God empowered Moses to do more than give speeches. Over the course of the coming days, as Pharaoh continued to refuse, Moses called down terrible plagues which had never been seen before. All the water turning to blood, the frogs, the lice, the flies, the livestock dying, the boils, the hail, the locusts, the darkness, and finally culminating in the 10th plague, the death of all the firstborn of Egypt. Add to that the parting of the Red Sea, and Moses being the instrument of God to call down manna, miraculous bread from heaven. And he goes down in history as the greatest miracle worker ever. There's a seventh marker then. Moses led God's people out of slavery. Moses led God's people out of slavery in what is rightly called the greatest event in the history of Israel. Moses led this people, over 600,000 men, not including women and children, out of bondage from the greatest power on earth at the time, Egypt. And through the ministry of Moses, God broke Pharaoh to pieces. And for the first time in any of their lifetimes, the people of Israel were walking in freedom. They had never known this. In fact, God would soon institute the Sabbath day of rest to continually remind them that they don't have to work seven days a week, that they should trust the Lord for their provision and protection. But God was really only beginning his plan for his people through Moses. They hadn't yet entered into the formal covenant with God. They hadn't been formed officially into God's holy and set apart nation. And so Moses led them to Mount Sinai where it all began for him. And to see that process begin now of making Israel into God's people. It brings us to an eighth marker. Moses became the mediator of the covenant between God and his chosen people. 
He became the mediator of the covenant between God and his chosen people. At Mount Sinai, God gave Moses his law and covenant, the covenant between God and Israel expressed in the Ten Commandments. Exodus 34, 27 and 28. And the Lord said to Moses, write these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made covenant with you and with Israel. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. This is monumental. And not only did God rescue Israel from slavery by his might, but now he's voluntarily entering into relationship with them. And so through Moses, Israel is being called God's special people, his holy people, his set apart people, his unique people. Deuteronomy 7 says that you are Israel whom I love. And God enters into covenant relationship with his people And they enter into covenant relationship with the one true and living God through Moses. This is a big deal. This is huge. In fact, the giving of this covenant was a time of sobriety and seriousness and awe and wonder as demonstrated by something that Moses did just to prepare for this. It brings us to our ninth marker showing just how special this moment was. The ninth marker Moses fasted for 40 days to prepare for mediation. He fasted for 40 days to prepare for mediation. Exodus 24 says that Moses was at Mount Sinai in the presence of God for 40 days and 40 nights. Exodus 34 says that he ate no food and drank no water. This is a miraculous sustaining of Moses in the very presence of God himself. This is a time of intense and perfect focus and communion with God, fellowship like no man has ever known. And what was the purpose? Well, Moses was about to mediate between God and man and was about to lead his people to knowledge of the true God through the revelation of the law. And now, having been fully prepared and having received revelation from God in the form of the Ten Commandments, we come to the next marker. Moses became the lawgiver of Israel. He became the lawgiver of Israel. Can we possibly fathom what it means that the God of all creation who communicated mere words to a people whom he's chosen in grace and love, can we understand this? Can we possibly fathom what it means to be the man through whom this revelation of God comes? Moses had tablets of stone upon which God himself wrote. None of us have ever had that. This was how Israel was to know her God, through the words given in the law which expound upon the character and the holiness and delights of their God. It's no wonder that Psalm 119 verse 174 says, your law is my delight. God had communicated with his people and made relationship with them. And for the next 40 years, Moses would be the voice of God to God's people, which brings us to our next marker. Moses was the premier prophet to God's people. Moses was the premier prophet to God's people. The people of God never had to wonder what the mind of God was. They always had Moses with them. Can you imagine that? They always had Moses to inquire of God on their behalf and through the good times and the bad, Moses was always there to reveal the will of God, the instructions of God, the love of God. To put it this way, the people had a man they knew, someone they could relate to that spoke to God from them and spoke to them from God. What an amazing resource. Moses was the premier prophet, and what a prophet. He was humble. He was marvelous. 
Exodus 33:11 Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And you might think this would have gone to Moses's head, but it didn't. Numbers 12 verse 3 says now the man Moses was very meek more than all people who were on the face of the earth. And as the premier prophet to God's people, Moses genuinely sought God's favor for his people. This brings us to our next marker. Moses constantly interceded for God's people. Moses constantly interceded for God's people. When the Israelites sinned, Moses was always standing by, ready to seek God on their behalf and plead with God for their forgiveness. After the horrific idolatry at the foot of Mount Sinai with the golden calf, Moses interceded twice for the people. Exodus 32, two different times. When the people complained and the fire of the Lord began to burn the edges of Israel's camp. Numbers 11 verse 2 says, Then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. When his brother and sister Aaron and Miriam spoke against Moses, the implication is, by the way, to others. And when they decided to challenge his right to lead, his sister Miriam was struck by God with leprosy. And Numbers 12, 13 says, Moses cried to the Lord, Oh God, please heal her, please. Moses was always at the ready to intercede for Israel to God. But I think it's difficult for us to truly comprehend the depths to which Moses would go out of love for his people. One last marker. Moses was willing to die instead of his people. Moses was willing to die instead of his people. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai and saw that Israel had begun reveling around the golden calf they had made, listen to this, God, uh, Exodus 32.10 records that God made an amazing offer to Moses. God said, Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. That all of God's promises to Abraham could still be perfectly fulfilled even if God started over with Moses alone and decimated the nation of Israel as it was. Now I have to wonder what we would have done. I think most of us would have paused at least for a moment and said, hmm, that's an interesting offer. But not only did Moses not consider it, instead Exodus 32 verse 32 records that Moses offered to give his life to preserve Israel, not only his life, but to put it in the words of Moses, to be blotted out of the book written by God. Moses offered to receive the wrath of God for his people, if that were possible, to be wrenched from the favor of God, to be treated as if he had committed all the sins of Israel. To put it in terms we're more familiar with, he offered to lose his salvation if only his people could be saved. So given the facts that the king attempted to murder Moses, that Moses was hidden in Egypt to save his life, that Moses went from a palace to poverty, that Moses became the hero of the well, that Moses answered God's call to save his people, that Moses performed miracles as God's representative, Moses saved his people, that Moses became the mediator of a covenant between God and his chosen people, that Moses fasted for 40 days to prepare for mediation, that Moses became the lawgiver of Israel, that he was the premier prophet to God's people, that he constantly interceded for God's people and that Moses was willing to die instead of his people. I think we can see why Moses to this day is revered and honored and lifted up. 
among the Jews. Do you see why Moses is mentioned in the Bible 852 times? No wonder Jesus himself was constantly referring positively to Moses and to the law of Moses. But Jesus said something about Moses. John chapter 5 records a time early in Jesus' ministry when he was in Jerusalem and Jesus healed a paralyzed man on the Sabbath, thus incurring the criticism and the persecution of the Jewish leaders. And John 5.18 says this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, meaning the man-made traditions around Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And so Jesus excoriates these Jewish leaders who refused to believe in him, they were self-righteous and they called themselves followers of Moses. And Jesus preached what we call a polemical sermon, a sermon arguing against error. And he nails these unrighteous men who claim to be followers of Moses. He said, you refuse to come to me that you may have life. And now Jesus concludes this scathing, rebuking sermon, calling them to account for their so-called following of Moses. Listen carefully. He says in John 5, beginning in verse 45, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. Listen to this. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Listen very carefully. God told Moses and Moses told Israel the following. Deuteronomy 18. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. In other words, not only did Moses write of Jesus, and he certainly did. Jesus is the coming savior of Genesis 3.15. Jesus is the angel of the Lord appearing to Abraham and to Moses. Jesus is the Shekinah glory of God leading Israel out of captivity. Jesus is the rock of their salvation. Jesus is the coming prophet who will speak the words of God. But not only did Moses write of Jesus, the Jewish leaders should have recognized Jesus as the Messiah, the son of God, the prophet who was to come because the life of Christ looked like the life of Moses. It looked just like it. The life of Christ looked like the life of Moses because Moses served not only as the leader of God's people, his life served as a model, as a shallow replica of the very life and ministry of Christ. You've already been picking up on this, I'm sure. Let's go through some of these markers. The first marker, the king attempted to murder Jesus. Herod was the client king, the hired king of the Roman region of Judea. The wise men were looking for the savior king who had been born. They wanted to come to him, but they came to Herod for instructions and Herod was jealously guarding his so-called kingship over Israel and he tried to get the wise men to come back to tell him when they had found Jesus, but they were warned in a dream not to return to Herod. 
Matthew 2, beginning in verse 16, says, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. And just like those precious little boys of Israel were killed, being killed, yet Moses was saved, the little boys in and around Bethlehem were killed, and yet Jesus was spared. How? The next marker, Jesus was hidden in Egypt to save his life. He was hidden in Egypt to save his life. Matthew 2, 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. It's entirely possible that the gold and the frankincense and the myrrh given to Jesus by the wise men enabled that little family of three to live in Egypt until Herod had died. The next marker, Jesus went from a palace to poverty. He went from a palace to poverty. John 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Compare this to the folks he grew up with around Nazareth who said in Mark 6 verse 3, Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Why? Because he was just a poor carpenter. That's all he was. Jesus himself prayed in John 17 5. He said, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. The Gettys hymn, There is a Higher Throne, has a beautiful stanza in it that says, Hear heaven's voices sing. Their thunderous anthem rings. Through emerald courts and sapphire skies, their praises rise. That's where Jesus was. And then one night, an angel came to some shepherds outside of Bethlehem and said, This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. From a palace to poverty. The next marker, Jesus became the hero of the well. Jesus became the hero of the well. Moses came to a well in Midian where he saved the seven sisters from the hopeless situation of not being able to draw water. John chapter 4 records Jesus coming to a well in Samaria to a woman who was in a hopeless situation of being caught up in her own horrible sinful lifestyle without the forgiveness of God. And Jesus told her in John 4, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She repented of her sin and drew many others to the living waters of Jesus Christ. The next marker Jesus answered God's call to save his people. Jesus answered God's call to save his people. In John 5, 43, Jesus said, I have come in my father's name. John 10, 25, Jesus did his work, quote, in my father's name. John 10, 37, Jesus said he is doing the works of my father. And of course, very classically, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 
John 5, 23, the Father sent me. John 5, 36, the Father has sent me. Verse 37, the Father has sent me. John 6, 44, the Father has sent me. John 6, 57, the living Father has sent me. John 8, 16, John 8, 18, John 8, 42, John chapter 10, chapter 12, chapter 14, chapter 17, chapter 20, the Father has sent me, the Father has sent me, the Father has sent me. Jesus answered the call to save his people. The next marker, Jesus performed miracles as God's representative. Oh, the glorious miracles that Jesus performed to demonstrate that not only was he like Moses, but he was greater than Moses. Miracles of healing and of nature and of resurrection. And like Moses, even miracles of manna, as it were, or bread. The day after the miraculous feeding of 5,000 men plus women and children, Jesus preached to the same crowd that he had just fed miraculously. Jesus answered them, this is John six twenty nine. this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Keep in mind that he had just fed them miraculously the day before. They made a comparison. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. What is the true bread? He goes on. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. The next marker, Jesus became the mediator of a covenant between God and his chosen people. And this is where a very clear comparison is made. Comparing Jesus to Moses, Hebrews 8, 6 says, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. The Mosaic covenant, the Israelite covenant was a good and perfect covenant, but it was incomplete. The new covenant is perfect, it goes beyond. Hebrews 9, 15, therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised in eternal inheritance since a death has occurred, that is the death of Christ, that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. The, book, the gospel of John opens with John 1, 17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And because Jesus became the mediator of the new covenant, we have access to God. We have a direct line to the life of God, to the throne of God, to spend eternity with God. And how did Jesus begin this mediating process? The next marker, Jesus fasted for 40 days to prepare for mediation. He fasted for 40 days. When Moses was preparing for mediation, he was in the presence of holy God on Mount Sinai, fasting for 40 days and nights, basking in the very life of God. Right after Jesus was baptized, inaugurating his ministry, rather than basking in the life of God, Jesus was called upon to demonstrate his deity, to demonstrate his other sinlessness. And rather than basking in the life of God, Matthew 4 records that Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And of course, as God, fully God, 
There was never a possibility that Jesus could sin. And yet from a human standpoint, he withstood the three greatest temptations ever thrown at anyone. Satan tried to tempt Jesus to use his power for his own good. Make these stones into bread. Satan tried to tempt Jesus to show off his power by having angels come save him if he threw himself off the pinnacle of the temple. And Satan tried to tempt Jesus to rule the whole world without having to suffer or having to fulfill the ministry his heavenly father had given him. In other words, without having to go to the cross. Weakened in his body by 40 days with no food. Nevertheless, the mighty, perfect, holy son of God demonstrated his sinless, total resistance to Satan's temptation and his victory over Satan that he indeed was the perfect and only mediator qualified to represent mankind to God and God to mankind. The next marker, Jesus became the lawgiver of the new covenant. He became the lawgiver of the new covenant. Jesus said in John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. John 15, 12, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Every time Jesus spoke, it becomes scripture, by the way. John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. What do we call all the commandments of Christ, both in the Gospels and in the New Testament? The Apostle Paul told us, he said in Galatians 6, verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. The Pentateuch given through Moses, the New Testament given through Christ. All of it, obviously, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But in comparing those two men, that's the comparison. The next marker, Jesus was the premier prophet to God's people. Jesus was the premier prophet to God's people. The Jewish leaders were having difficulty finding a way to arrest Jesus. Now, why is this? Matthew 21, 46 says, although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Some of them got it. Some of them figured it out by God's help. John 1, 45 says, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses wrote in the law and also, I'm sorry, whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. They figured it out. They saw who he was. On the road to Emmaus after the resurrection of Christ, Jesus appeared to two disciples but kept them from recognizing him. And he said to them, this is Luke 24, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. And one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? He didn't know he was speaking to Jesus. I suppose he would regret those words later. And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people. The next marker Jesus constantly intercedes for God's people. He constantly intercedes for God's people. 1 John 2, 1, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Hebrews seven twenty five. consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. That is the current ministry of Christ. Compare him to Moses. Moses maybe could climb a little mountain and meet with God from a little mountain. Jesus intercedes for us from the very throne of God himself, right next to him. 
One more marker. Jesus was willing to die instead of his people. Jesus was willing to die instead of his people. John 10, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 15 of the same chapter, just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Two verses later, for this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. He says this over and over and over again. I'm going to lay down my life. I'm going to lay down my life. I'm going to lay down my life. Romans 5, verse 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This was central to the gospel. Why could Moses not die for his people? Because he wasn't sinless. He was not an adequate sacrifice. It was thanks, but no thanks, Moses. One greater than Moses would have to come. And that one is our Savior, Jesus, who laid down his life to pay the penalty for your sin. Well, I'd like to close our time together. And I'd like to close our look at Deuteronomy and close our look at the Pentateuch by doing a scripture reading together. I'd like to have you stand with me and open to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. And to close our time in the Pentateuch and in Deuteronomy, I'm going to read the first six verses. Hebrews chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. And let these words saturate your soul. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in the heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Deuteronomy points us to Christ. The Pentateuch points us to Christ. And Moses always points us to Christ. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for this word, which is so clear. Jesus rightly condemned the leaders of Israel for not recognizing him. All they had to do was look at the life of Moses and they would have seen the clear parallels. And so, Lord, we thank you for your word, which is good, which is true, which is wondrous. We thank you for the Pentateuch. I pray that for all of us, Lord, it would be a comfort and a joy to know that the story of the Bible begins 
with such truth, such eloquence, such incredible precision and direction, all pointing us to Christ Jesus. And it is in his name we pray. Amen.